welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. What is hope? Is it positive thinking? Is it wishful thinking? Is it optimism? At the beginning of this pandemic, I presented to you an idea from Commander James Stockdale, who survived seven years in a prisoner of war camp during the Vietnam War. And he noticed that in order to survive, or even comparing his life and to those around him, the ones who didn't survive, he said, were the ones who kept thinking it was going to get better. This is just a short period of time. Our suffering will end soon. The war will end soon. He said almost it it was a sense they died of broken hearts because their hopes kept getting dashed. So he said, actually, on the one hand, to survive and even potentially thrive in hard times, you need to confront the brutal facts. You cannot be naive or dreamy or disconnected from reality, what is really going on. And yet, he said, at the same time, you also need to hold out for hope that in the end, you will win. He said, to confront the brutal facts and hold on to hope is what allows you to survive and even thrive in a difficult time. In a time where it seems like this is going on far too long. But then the question is, what is hope? How do we get it? If you're anything like me, there's things that I look at or look to that give me a sense of hope. Maybe I feel hopeful or I have hope if the numbers are lower today than they were yesterday. If the interest rates or the mortgage rates are better. If my investments look better. If I see a great email with good news coming across my desk or a text message of something encouraging that boosts my confidence. Or maybe we look at what we see on our Instagram feed, the number of followers, the number of likes, that those are the things that we look at to have hope. That's normal, I guess. That's common for all of us. But what do you do when you can't see anything? What do you do when what you look at seems uncertain, unclear? The timeline seems to go on forever. When you can't see because it's dark. Or maybe even more to the point, what do you do when what you look at is dark? It feels difficult, hard, chaotic, isolating. That leads to hopelessness. That's true for many of us. How do we see when we're in the dark? So I want to stop for a moment and just give you a second at home if you're on your own to reflect on this or if you want to, if you're with other people to discuss this question. What are the things you look at or look to to give you a sense of hope? Or maybe a better way to understand it, if you're feeling hopelessness right now, why? What is it in particular that's causing you to feel that way? Just take a moment and think about that or discuss that with the people around you.
if it's true that hope is the indispensable element for us to survive and even thrive when we can't see because it's dark or what we see is dark, how do we have hope in the dark? That's actually the question we are going to be working through and wrestling with over these next nine weeks in this current series. And if you're new to our church, if you're new to church in general, if you're new to our community or you've been a part of this family for a long time, here's my prayer and my hope. That this is not just sort of an exercise and an intellectual discussion, that, but that by the end of this or certainly even throughout it, you and I and our community as a whole, whether you're new to this or just checking this out, would be people who actually have an experience of hope that changes our perspective. It changes what we feel on the inside, changes how we deal with, quite frankly, situations and an environment right now that seems like it's going on too long. That maybe the indicators are the things that we would look at to give us hope don't look very hopeful. That you and I would be people, not naive, not disconnected from the facts and reality, but in the midst of reality would be people who have an experience, who live with hope. A kind of hope that is not only tangible for us, but that's actually shareable, if I can say it that way, so that the people who come in contact with us experience the hope that we have. To wrestle with this, to get at this, we go to maybe the most unlikely place for hope. The apocalypse. <laughs> Even as I say that, we think like, what? Like that does not sound like hope. When, when if you look up the word apocalypse or maybe even know what it means or movies that are apocalyptic in, in general, it, it tends to uh, all gravitate towards what is described as the chaotic and catastrophic end of the world. That, that's kind of what the word apocalypse or ap apocalyptic means. And, and that's sort of in the vernacular, that's what it's come to mean. There's genres of literature and films that are all about this. But truthfully, uh, originally, the, it comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, um, which references a kind of literary genre that existed in the few hundred years in the Jewish uh, circles before the birth of Christ and a few hundred years in Christian circles after the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was a literary genre that wasn't, didn't actually have to do with sort of the catastrophic end of the world, but it actually meant, the transliterated English word is, revelation, something that we can see. But even as I say that, you might think like, if, you're, uh, if you think, well, how could the apocalypse give us hope? Maybe that calls to mind um, books you've read or movies you've seen like The Maze Runner or any form of dystopian literature about how the world is going to get, you know, those generally saying life is a beautiful journey with a terrible and catastrophic ending. That's what those movies and books are about. Maybe people will get eaten by zombies, whatever it is. That's kind of what we think of when we, if, if you've never read Revelation, this book um, of Revelation that we're actually studying that is apocalyptic book, you might think, well, that, that's what that is. There is only one, actually, apocalyptic book in the whole library of what we call scripture. And maybe some of you would say, oh, yeah, I know what that is, Revelation. I've read it before. But either you read it and you put it down because it was so weird, like over-the-top images of dragons, of beasts, of um, plagues of a lake of fire, of uh, uh, all kinds of strange stuff that you thought, I don't know. <laughs> like, certainly it wasn't like you thought, I'm going to put that verse on my wall or maybe tattoo it on my arm. Or when someone came to you looking for hope, you're like, oh, I know where to go. You were like, I don't know what that means. 
Or some of us grew up with an understanding of Revelation of this book as it's kind of a code book, like um, tomorrow's newspaper slid under our door today. And it's got, if we can decode it, we'll be able to figure out when the end of the world is coming. And, and there's lots of people in writing, and now with the internet, you can read all the time of who the next Antichrist is, or because the Revelation talks about the Antichrist. And it must be this political leader or that political leader. And every decade or every 50 years or so, there's been another group of Christians that have said, oh, it's this person, it's that person, that that's mostly how Revelation has been interacted with. Um, but that's not actually primarily what the book of Revelation is about. It's not tomorrow's newspaper today. Um, it is a strange book, but it is in a sense strange because of what it is. It's not primarily written to give us information. Uh, in fact, one author said there's no new information in Revelation that wasn't in the 65 books before it. It is actually a retelling of all of the story of God and his people and the world, but in a vivid kind of 3D, HD, 4K dream. Um, it, it's, it almost reads like a trippy, you know, somebody came back from a Grateful Dead concert after, after an acid trip. There's people, like legitimately, it is so strange. In fact, I've had friends who have been on acid who describe stuff like this that it sounds like. But the point is, it is an over-the-top, it's like if you were ever trying to tell someone something of a dream you had. It doesn't make sense in one sense, but it's the images, how you felt about it, what you could almost smell or touch or taste. It is meant to engage the senses, not some information to be gathered, Gathered, but something to be experienced and immersed in and in the process to see something. That's what Revelation is about. That's what the book is for. And the point actually is that what we see and experience would give us hope. You might think, well, how on earth is that going to give us hope? Well, it actually needs to start with understanding of who wrote this. It was a letter, actually, not like any letter you've ever received. And it was a letter written by someone to a particular group of people. And as we understand who wrote it and why and who they wrote it to, it actually begins to help us understand, wow, how could this be an indispensable source? In fact, even maybe the primary place of hope that we could turn to in Scripture. The letter is written, if you read it in the opening chapters, which we're going to look at today, by someone named John, who was a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. And we know John actually was writing it in exile. He was on an island that was kind of basically sent there as punishment by the Roman Empire. And so he's someone who's writing out of an experience of isolation and hardship. And he's writing to early Christians in the first century living in the Roman Empire. Now, the Roman Empire at that point stretched from, if you want to think geography-wise, from like British Columbia to Cuba and spanning east to west the entire uh, continental United States. So that's how big the Roman Empire was. But it was in the late first century, around 90 AD. And at this point for Jesus' followers, it was as hard and chaotic and isolating and unjust as it could have possibly been. I have to understand at this point, Jewish uh, uh, Christians were being heavily persecuted um, politically and, and sanctioned by the empire under the rule of Domitian, um, the emperor. And basically, by this point in, in the Roman Empire, the Roman emperor was not just a political figurehead, he was a god. And so emperor worship was now a part of being a Roman citizen or being under Roman rule. 
Yes, you could have other religions that you did, but you also had to worship the emperor. And Christians, of course, refused to acknowledge that the emperor was Lord. They kept saying, no, Jesus is Lord, not the emperor. And because of that, they were in financial hardship. Think about it this way. This was, if you were a blacksmith, you were part of a guild or a group of blacksmiths. And as part of your work, you had uh, worship that you went to. And you would go to a temple and worship other gods. And, and part of that would be probably involve prostitution. Um, sexuality and spirituality have always been very closely linked. But in those days, it was actively linked in public worship. And so to be part of a, the blacksmith community, you had to go and worship like this. And Christians, of course, refused to do that. Also involved in that was worshiping their emperor, and they refused to do that. And so that could mean you were kicked out of your guild, so you lost your job, or it could mean you were just persecuted in the workplace. It also meant that other people were allowed to actively plunder you. Um, in some cases, uh, Christians were tortured, um, re re um, you know, forced to try to confess that the emperor was Lord and, not, and to stop saying that Jesus was Lord. They were thrown to the lions. Some of you that are familiar with Roman history in terms of the Colosseum and the gladiators, Christians were used physically for sport. Even at that point, they weren't under the care or covering of the Jewish synagogue anymore. Jewish synagogues were kicking Christians out saying, stop saying this guy Jesus was Lord. And so they weren't under the protection of the Jewish synagogues either. So they were basically being persecuted. They were experiencing financial, emotional, psychological, and physical hardship. It was a difficult time. It was a dark time. And this letter is written to them from someone who's suffering to someone who's suffering in chaos, isolation, hardship, and injustice, saying, have hope. That was the point of Revelation, to help them to see something else that would actually give them hope. Even still, we might think, well, how does that give us hope? You read it, you might think, this is not for me, and this has nothing to do with hope. But here's the thing, even though you and I are, in a sense, 2,000 years removed from their political and geographical and cultural situation, not to compare the specifics, but you and I also find ourselves as people in isolation, as people living in a world of chaos where we open our newsfeed or our phones, we think, what on earth am I going to read today? We are living in hardship. And we are people who look at the systems and the people with power who are unjustly using it. And so in many ways, we are people in the same, suffering the same symptoms, needing hope in the dark. We actually need a revelation of hope. And that's why we're camping out on this book for the next two months. And we're inviting you in our hope and prayers as you read the verses that are going to be on the blog, as you listen to the messages as we preach through them, as you immerse yourself in the vivid dream and picture that is revelation, that you would actually begin to experience hope and say, yes, I need this now. I am seeing something new. And for the rest of our time here, we want to camp out in the beginning of this revelation because what happens at the beginning, what happens in chapter one, in a sense, sets the tone for everything. And so I want you to listen as Tanya Buchan from our Vaughn site reads the opening pages of Revelation chapter one. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see 
and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see that voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Here is where the revelation, the picture of hope begins. It begins with John writing. And look what he says. He said, this is from John, your companion, your brother, your friend in, in other words, I'm sharing with you in this, even though I'm separated from you physically in three things, suffering, the kingdom, and patient endurance. He says, I'm suffering with you. I'm isolated. And, and he actually says, I'm suffering, we know, because of the testimony of Jesus or whatever, which is a recurring phrase in Revelation to say, when I spoke about Jesus and because I wouldn't stop saying Jesus is Lord, not the emperor, I ended up in prison. So he's saying, I, I'm sharing in your suffering. I know what you're going through. I am your companion in the kingdom. What kingdom? Well, all they could see was the empire. He says, no, no, I'm your companion in something else that I want you to see, not just the empire, the kingdom of Jesus. And he says, patient endurance. And he reminds them, in Jesus, Jesus, the suffering one, Jesus, the one who is king, Jesus, the one who has and calls us to patiently endure. And this is so the beginning of a message of hope, is saying, I'm with you, I know what you're going through but I want you to see something else that will give you hope. And what does John see? Does he see some new information that uh, can say, oh, I didn't realize that, some new facts? Does he see some things that he was missing that now he'll understand? No, it's not something he sees, it's someone. Look what he says. He said there was a voice speaking. I turned around to hear a voice speaking that told him, write this stuff down and give it to the seven churches. And the seven churches were actually seven different places in the Roman Empire. And near the end of the series, we're going to talk about what those letters were about. But the number seven actually in Revelation and in biblical literature and even ancient literature is about a number of completeness. And so commentators would say this isn't just about a letter to those seven churches in those seven places in the Roman Empire in that day. It is a letter to all churches in all places at all times. 
And so this is for us. And so he sees something. And what is the beginning of the revelation for John? He says, I turned around to see a voice that was speaking. And, and, he, and, and listen to this. What he sees floors him. Floors him. He says, I turned around to see and I saw a vision of Jesus. And it says he fell down as if he was dead. This is strange, actually. You know why? Because John knew Jesus. He had actually seen him in the flesh many times before. They had eaten countless meals together. They were besties for three years. John's actually the one who says, writes about himself, the disciple that Jesus loved. That's how he referred to himself. It's like, you know, the artist formerly known as Prince or whatever, like talking about yourself in the third person. John was the disciple Jesus loved. I'm sure the other disciples didn't like that, but I think they were all dead by the time he wrote it, so nobody could argue. He was close with Jesus. They knew each other's families. In fact, John cared for Jesus' mom after Jesus died. They had eaten meals together. They had fished together. They had talked together. They had shared so much of life together. And rarely, if ever, had John ever fallen down. It's not like Jesus came to his door and said, hey, let's go. And John's like, <gasps> he falls down dead. And Jesus is like, okay, John, enough. Like, you can stop pretending to fall down. No, he knew Jesus. He had seen Jesus before. And yet this Jesus that he sees absolutely floors him to the point. He says, I fell down as if I was dead. Why? What does he see? He sees a completely different Jesus than he's ever seen before. And again, this is a vision. This is a dream. And so he's trying to describe it. One of my professors who, who taught me a course in Revelation said, when you're reading Revelation, you have to learn to love the word like. Like, it's like you're trying to describe. Again, think about yourself trying to describe. It's really vivid, but weird dream. It was like this, and then it was like this. And your friends are like, what? And you're like, no, I'm just trying to tell you what it felt like, what I saw. And so he says he sees this picture of Jesus with white, white hair and eyes of like that were blazing fire. He sees him holding seven stars in his hand, and, and some think that that was a reference to the seven planets that they knew existed at that time. That's what they knew of the solar system, that in a sense he sees Jesus kind of holding the whole universe in his hand. He hears a voice, but the voice is like the sound of rushing waters. I don't know if you've ever been near a waterfall or really fast-moving rapids or if you've ever gone in the Maid of the Mist in Niagara Falls. There's a certain point when you get close enough to the rushing waters, you have to yell to let the person next to you hear because the sound, but it's not like a, it's not like a piercing sort of high-pitched sound. It's a sound that makes you feel like you're immersed and you don't feel like plugging your ears. It's just overwhelming. He says, that's what the voice was like. It was like this sound that was immersing me in rushing, powerful waters. And even more powerful of the, the voice, it was like a sword coming out of his mouth and then feet of bronze like glowing in a furnace. It's this overwhelming picture of Jesus that blows John away and floors him to the ground. It says he was terrified as though dead. <laughs> Ironically, friends, this is so hopeful for us. Why? Why would I say that? I mean, it doesn't sound like it was hopeful for John when he feels terrified and he falls down as though dead. Here, here's why it's hopeful. Because up to that point, you know what John had been seeing? He had been seeing his isolation. 
He had been seeing the chaos of the world that he and his brothers and sisters and family members and his friends in Christ were living in. He had seen um, people die for their faith. He had seen them being tortured. He saw an iron-fisted empire that was trying to crush them, that whose brutal reign was actually expanding. That's what he had seen with his eyes. And all of that was producing fear and isolation and despair and hopelessness in him and in the lives of the people he was shepherding and caring for. And in a moment, he couldn't see any of it anymore. All he could see was Jesus. Jesus filled the frame. He wasn't terrified anymore of Rome. He was falling on his face with this vision of Jesus that had completely, if I can say this, eclipsed what he was seeing before. Everything else that made him afraid and despairing and hopeless was gone from his sight and all he could see was Jesus. It's so hopeful, but it gets even more hopeful. Look what Jesus does. John falls on his face like dead before him and Jesus puts his right hand on him and he says, don't be afraid. He touches him. Don't be afraid. You can almost picture him lifting up and saying, John, hello, it's me. <laughs> it's me, remember? He says, I died, remember? And now I am alive again and I will never die again. You remember? Rome killed me too. And then I crushed death. And that's why he says this beautiful thing. He says, I am the first and the last. I am the eternal one, not the eternal empire of Rome. This thing will not last forever. I am the one who lasts forever. The emperor is not Lord and God. I hold the keys to death and hell, not him. He's putting you through hell. He's putting you to death, but I'm the one that holds the keys. Rome is not the eternal empire my kingdom is. The emperor is not king. I am. Remember, have hope. You have lost sight of me. And so the very first thing John needs to see is not new information, not new things, but someone he has known but has forgotten is the beginning and the end, was dead and crushed by Rome and is alive again and holds the keys to everything. This is the vision John needs to see. And he needed that. The Lord knew. That's why he gave him this picture to give to the people. If you are going to have hope, the beginning of hope is that what fills the frame what eclipses everything else you see is a picture of me so that you are not afraid anymore about what human beings can do to you. That you are not overwhelmed by how much injustice and justice is being perverted by those who have power. That you are not crippled into hopelessness by the fact that this thing seems to be getting stronger and going on longer than you could have ever imagined. No, you are meant to see me. He needed to see something new. And friends, that is the beginning of hope for you and I as well. You and I actually need to see something new. And if I can say it this way, and this is here what I want to leave with you, not only for today, but really for this series, is that we need to make hope a habit. To make hope a habit. Here's what I mean. You have habits of things that you look at every day. 
You look at the news every day. You look at your investments every day. You look at your phone every day. You look at email every day. You look at your Instagram feed every day. You look at those things. Ultimately, you may not realize it, but you look at them to give you hope when things look difficult or feel hard or hardship or when they feel dark. You look to the future to try to give you a sense of hope. You look to people in authority or people with power or people with money to try to give you a sense of confidence and instead what you feel makes you even more, what you see makes you even more hopeless. Or perhaps you don't look at any of those things. You distract yourself with media or with whatever because you are feeling hopeless all the time. We have daily habits of things that we are constantly looking at, but hope needs a habit too. And by that I mean you and I need to daily look at Jesus. You and I need to daily look at the one who can fill the frame of our vision with a hope that is greater than the things that we see around us that actually might tempt us to despair and hopelessness. And so how are you going to do that? One of the ways that we'd encourage you with is, is our blog. We call it our Daily Reading or Reconnect. Some of you have said, oh, I wish we could study the Bible more at our church, or I wish I could understand the Bible more. Do you know last year alone, our staff wrote 200 entries, basically, through Scripture, trying to help you understand Scripture more, try to help you have a daily habit of hope. And so we're doing that again through this blog. You can be reading through the book of Revelation, and you might be like, what the heck is this? But I'm trying to immerse myself in an experience. I'm trying to cultivate my imagination, my senses. And you can go through the blog to help you understand a little bit of what you're reading, ultimately for the purpose of having hope. That's a beautiful place to start with a daily habit, that you would make hope a habit by saying, I need to see Jesus. It's not information. It's not knowledge about the future. It's not all of the circumstances and the visible things that I can see that are going to give me a sense of hope. It is a greater vision of Jesus that is going to eclipse the things that otherwise I look at every day that tempt me to distraction, disconnection, despair, or hopelessness. I need to make hope a habit. Because you and I need a fresh vision of Jesus like the ones John had when he walked with Jesus, Jesus eating meals with him and being with him and touching him on the shoulder, but also visions of Jesus that floor us, that suddenly fill the frame, and that everything we were looking at that was causing us despair and fear and disconnection and hopelessness is pushed out of frame, and we see Jesus again. And so I just encourage you to do that and to, as you even today, to, to ask yourself this question, to ask him, Jesus, can you give me a fresh picture, or if you want to use this word, a revelation of you to me, for me? Jesus, can you give me a fresh picture, a fresh revelation of you to me and for me in this time? As we close our service, we're going to head into a time of communion together, and Dave Al is going to lead us in that. But this communion elements is just us coming to him and as he offers himself to us. And I want you, even as you come this morning, to picture him putting his hand on your shoulder and say, hey, don't be afraid. Look at me. I was dead and I'm alive forever. Don't be afraid. Have hope.